I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, as we finish up our study of this first chapter today by looking at the birth of John the Baptist. And so if you've been with us in our our walk through this chapter so far, you'll remember that uh, the angel Gabriel breaks 400 years of silence from God by uh, speaking to Zechariah the priest during his duty at the temple, and he tells him that his prayer has been heard, and that God is going to give him a son, that he'll name that son John, and that John uh, will have a special purpose. He'll have a special role, and that he will be the, the forerunner for the Messiah. He's going to prepare the way for the Lord. And if you were with us when we looked at that passage earlier in Luke chapter 1, you may remember that Zechariah does not respond in faith and in belief. In fact, he, he's hesitant, he has questions, and at the core of those questions are a lack of belief on his part that God will indeed do what God said he would do. And so as a result of this, Gabriel tells him in verse 20, Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And so now we're looking at the passage later in Luke 1, where where in their time has come nine months later. Uh, It is time for the child to be born that God promised would come. And we're going to see today how Zechariah responds now differently than he did earlier in Luke chapter 1. And so we're going to look at Luke 1, verses 57 through 80. And out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, I want to invite you to stand as I read today's passage for us. We stand out of reverence because this indeed is the, the holy word of God handed down to us. And this is what God's word says. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives are called by that name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosened. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, 
being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. If you would pray with me. Father, we are thankful this morning to receive your word. And I pray, God, that you would help us to respond now to your word in repentance and in faith, and that you would help us to understand the truth that you've placed before us today. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. We live in a day and age when we literally have uh, unlimited options when it comes to, to entertainment, to, to watching movies or television. You, you, can, you can take out your phone and, and watch TV, although I would appreciate if you didn't do that right now, but you, you can do that. You can watch movies on a computer, and uh, you can even watch them on a television set. And when you do those things, you, you see this clear, high-definition picture. But it wasn't that long ago that things were a bit different. In fact, kids, if you see uh, pictures of your parents when they were kids, you might notice in those pictures in the living room that this odd device sitting on the floor, a, a large box, and that box had kind of a, a rounded screen on the front of it, and on the top of it, it had these two very long antennas coming out of it. Now, that's how we used to watch these things. And in fact, when, when I was a kid, uh, I did less watching and more moving of the rabbit ears, those antennas. And maybe you had that experience too, where uh, your mother or your father would say, okay, a little bit over, no, a little bit over, no, no, no that's it, that's, don't, don't move. And then as soon as you would move, the picture would get fuzzy again. You literally would just stand there holding those things sometimes in order to get a clear picture. And you did that because televisions often had noise in the signal. It would come on as static or even pictures from another channel or just, just odd sounds. There, there was all this noise that would keep you from seeing a clear picture. Well, as we come to Luke chapter 1 this morning, uh, we're reminded that God is in the business of giving clear pictures and clear signals. And he most certainly did this with Zechariah when Gabriel came to him in the temple. There, there was no confusion there. There was no static. There was no noise. It's this clear picture from God to Zechariah of what's going to take place. But where the interference and the noise comes in is in Zechariah's response. And that was because he had a, a lot of noise, a lot of unbelief, a lot of doubt. And because of these things, he did not respond in faith to God's promise. And so it's sort of ironic that after 400 years of silence that God speaks through Gabriel to Zechariah, and yet Zechariah doesn't believe, so what's going to happen to him? He's going to now be silent. He's not going to be able to speak 
And I think a, a big reason that God does this specific thing to him in his unbelief is so that the noise and the interference might be cut out in his life, so that he might just be still and be silent and listen to God's word, the word that had already been given to him through Gabriel. He's now going to have nine months in which he can't speak. He can't communicate verbally to others. Nine months to kind of clear the noise and to consider this message that God has brought to him. And today in our passage, we see that that silence in his life ends. And it ends when he responds very differently to the Lord's promise than he did earlier in this chapter. And so this morning, I want us to consider why it is he responded differently, what it is he had been pondering in his heart for those nine months, what it was he had learned about the Lord, and what it is we learn about the Lord as we walk through this passage. And so the first thing I think that, that he learned and that we learn is this, number one, that the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. Well, we see a clear picture of the Lord's grace here to Zechariah and to Elizabeth and the birth of their son, John. Well, how do we see that? Well, there's two things I want to point out. The first one is this. We see the Lord graciously keep his promise to Zechariah and to Elizabeth. And notice the parallels here. Back in verse 13, Gabriel said, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And nine months later, we read what? In verse 47, she bore a son. God said this is going to happen, and that's exactly what happened. Not just that. Verse 14, Gabriel said, when the son is born, many will rejoice at his birth. And then you look in today's passage, verse 58. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Now, how do we see God's grace here? We see it in that God's grace is, is unmerited favor. It's not something we earn. It's not something we deserve. Zechariah and Elizabeth didn't deserve this gift that God was giving them. And certainly Zechariah didn't because his response was unbelief. He didn't have faith. He didn't trust in the Lord. And so what we see here is not the Lord saying to Zechariah, well, if you just have enough faith, I'm going to do this to you. If you just believe strongly enough, I'm going to bless you. Now, what do we see here? God says to him, here's what I'm going to do, despite your lack of belief. Here's what I'm going to do, even though you doubt me. We see this consistent reminder in God's word that God is perfectly faithful, especially when we lack faith and we're not faithful. And friends, that's good news for us this morning. Because you and I, we, we struggle at times to have faith. We, we struggle to be consistent in our walk with the Lord. But here we're reminded that the Lord is gracious to us. And we especially see that grace during our struggles and during our times of unbelief. And Zechariah certainly sees that. He also sees it because the Lord graciously gives Zechariah a second chance to trust him. And so even though he had failed earlier in this chapter, even though he had not believed and not trusted, God gives him another opportunity. And so you'll remember again, verse 20, that Gabriel told him that he would be silent and unable to speak until the days that these things took place 
because he did not believe. And so it's very clear in Luke 1, Zechariah did not believe. And yet notice what God does here. He doesn't write Zechariah off. And he doesn't say to Zechariah, well, listen, after 400 years, I speak to you in the temple thinking you would trust me and you don't. So I'm going to go find somebody else. I mean, you think about it. God could have sent the message from Gabriel to Elizabeth. He could have sent the message from Gabriel to a number of people. And yet he, he sends it to Zechariah. And even though Zechariah doesn't believe, God doesn't write him off. He gives him another opportunity. And we see that opportunity in verse 59, where we read, On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. Now, it's important that we understand that there's a custom that's being mentioned here. And the custom in Zechariah's day, Elizabeth's day, is that the firstborn male child would always be named after the father. Perhaps in a rare case, they would be named after some other relative. But, but the custom in Zechariah's day uh, among these Jewish families was that you would name your firstborn son after the father. And that's not so random to us. We, we live in a day and age when, when we too will name our children after relatives. And so, for example, my, my grandfather was named Richard. And my father was Richard Donald. I'm named Richard Allen. My son is named Richard Parker. All of those names, including the middle ones, they're all family names. And so if Parker remembers, then he'll name his son Richard something. It's something we do. It's a, it's a custom in our family. And yet we also live in a day and age when we don't always do this. Now, some of you have names that have nothing to do with anyone on either side of your family. Uh, some of you were born into families like part of mine, where on my mother's side, I've got names like uh, Manola and Jollop. I've got three daughters. I don't have any Manolas or any Jollops. Those weren't names we decided to pass on. Yet we passed on other names. And then at times, we picked names that nobody in our family was named. Our daughter, Caroline. There, there's no Caroline in our families. We just picked a name. That's normal today. That was not normal in Zachariah's day. In fact, that was shocking in Zachariah's day. And so the picture you have here is that on the eighth day, it was customary that this firstborn son would be named at his circumcision. And this would take place in kind of a community environment where friends and relatives and neighbors, they would all gather together. So chances are they're already calling this child Zachariah because that's going to be his name. That's the custom. That's the assumption. And so there's a bit of shock here when Elizabeth says, no, we're, we're not going to call him Zachariah. His name's going to be John. Well, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense because as they start talking amongst themselves, it's like, well, there's, there's no John in her family. There's no John in his family. And so perhaps they think, well, Elizabeth's just not in the right mind. She's not thinking clearly. She's a bit confused. We'll, we'll, we'll just ask Zachariah. He can't speak, but surely he can indicate to us what he wants this boy to be named. And you notice Zachariah's response. His response is not, his name will be John. His response is, his name is John. Now, I think the indication here for Zachariah is that once he was uh, given the consequence of his unbelief and he couldn't speak and, and God's working on his heart, he, he had a lot of time those nine months to think about his lack of belief, his lack of trust. 
And he had a lot of time to consider what it was God had said to him through Gabriel. And I think during that time, as he's praying for his child, he's not just praying for a baby in the womb. He's not just praying for his little boy. He is praying for John. Because God said to him through Gabriel, his name will be John. And here, Zechariah, given this second chance by the Lord, this opportunity to act in faith, to trust in the Lord, to believe the Lord, well, it's a given for him now. I'm going to believe. I'm going to trust. God said his name would be John. His name is John. I mean, notice the difference you have in Zechariah just during these nine months. We start out with a picture of unbelief, with not trusting the Lord, and now we get to a place where he's believing and he's trusting. And I think it's especially interesting to consider at this point, he still can't speak. I mean, God said to him through Gabriel, you, you won't be able to speak until these things are fulfilled. It's a little ambiguous there as to when he would speak again. And so when John is born, perhaps he thinks, well, when his son's born, suddenly he'll get his voice back, but he doesn't. And now eight days later, when they're on the way to the circumcision, when family are gathering around, he might think, okay, I'm going to get my voice back, and yet his voice isn't there yet. And maybe he even thinks, okay, when they ask this question, I'll be able to speak and say his name is John, and yet he still doesn't have his voice back. But that does not hinder him from belief. He decides now he's going to trust in the Lord. Why? Because he can see God's grace in his life through the birth of this child that they had prayed for and hoped for. And even though he struggled to believe it, God is still perfectly gracious in his provision. And he gives Zechariah another opportunity, a second chance. And friends, this should encourage us greatly to remember God gives us second chances as well. And third and fourth and fifth and sixth. And just because you have failed in the past and you have struggled to believe, perhaps today you are doubting and struggling to believe. God is gracious to you and I to give you in this moment another opportunity to trust in him and to believe his word because he is entirely gracious to us. And we see that clearly here. We also see point two, that the Lord is merciful. The Lord is merciful. That the mercy of the Lord is the very first thing that Zachariah and Elizabeth's neighbors and relatives note when they hear about John's birth. And now Zechariah praises the Lord for his mercy, that this mercy is the compassion of God on his people. And we see that compassion here. And so Zechariah, once he says or communicates his name is John, then, then the Lord gives him his voice back. And then the very first thing he does is, is praises God. And then we have recorded for us this prophecy, that this word from the Lord that he is speaking through Zechariah, and in this prophecy, Zechariah points to the Lord's mercy in visiting and redeeming his people in verse 68. And then in the very next verse, he points to the Lord's mercy and in raising up a horn of salvation for us. Now, that is kind of an interesting term. We might think of a, of a horn as, a, as an instrument, uh, something that like blowing a, a horn. And we might think of that as, well, this horn of salvation is this proclamation, but that, that's not what the horn of salvation is a reference to here. And this is actually a, a reference, and we see this in the Old Testament, it's a reference to an animal's horn. 
And the animal's horn was a, a picture of its strength. And you're probably aware of this. Uh, not too long ago, on my many viewing options, on my clear screen, I was watching one of these nature shows. And it was a, a show about rhinos. And it talked about the, the natural predators of rhinos. And you have predators like lions that try to sneak up on rhinos. And rather than running away from the lion, the rhino actually will turn around and will run straight at it. And the reason for that is because if you've seen a rhino, you know, at the very tip of their snout, they've got this very large, very sharp horn. And they will use that horn, which is their strength, to defeat their enemies. And so this rhino can take on a, a much more fierce lion because it's got this horn and it. Literally, it'll just stick that horn in that line and throw the lion to the side. That, that horn is a picture of strength and of power. And what we see here in this prophecy from Zechariah is, is that the horn of salvation, this is the Lord, this is the power of the Lord, this is the strength of the Lord, and it's the power and strength to save. And Zechariah goes on to prophesy what it is the Lord saves us from in his power and strength. Verse 71, he says, he saves us from our enemies. It says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Friends, if, if you study through God's word, that there's no shortage of enemies for God's people. If you look around our world today, there's no shortage of, of people who hate the things of God, who hate the message of God, who, who love the darkness, and they don't want the light. And they actually hate, they, they are enemies. And all of these enemies are simply agents of the enemy that we see in the Scripture who hates God and hates man because he's created in the image of God. And what do we learn here about the Lord? We learn that he saves us from the enemy. Genesis 3.15, we're told, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God here is speaking to the enemy who comes into the garden as a serpent. And he says that the, the offspring will come, that the Messiah, the Lord, will come, and he will crush your head in strength and in power. He will defeat the great enemy. And how does that happen? Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. We see that Jesus on the cross crushes the head of the enemy, and then he empowers us to walk by faith, to trust him, understanding we don't need to fear the enemy because there will be a final crushing one day and a final ridding of all things wicked and all things evil. And we live between the cross and that great day that will come. And so we're reminded we, we need not fear the enemy. He says in verse 74 that, that we might serve him without fear. Now this is speaking of, a, of a, a fear that we don't need to have. We, we think about fear at times as fears we, we need to have. We call them healthy fears. And so, for example, uh, you, you've probably been to a zoo. I've been to a zoo. You, you can see lions in the zoo. They're, they're in an enclosure. I don't fear that because they're on the other side of the enclosure, but I'm not going to go over that enclosure and get into it with the lion. I'm not a rhino. 
I don't have an ability to take on a lion. I, I have a healthy fear of lions. There's lots of things we develop healthy fears of. But what we read here in verse 71, we might serve him without fear. This seems to be an unhealthy fear, a debilitating fear. Uh, specifically, I think here, it's a, it's a fear of the enemy and a fear of man, a fear associated with, with anyone or anything that might seek to bring us harm because we are followers of Jesus. And friends, this is a fear, if we're not careful, that, that we wrestle with and we struggle with. In fact, I think it's this fear at times that, that keeps us from sharing the gospel with others. We're scared of man. We're scared of how they're going to respond. We, we can be debilitated by the fear of the enemy in this wicked and lost world that we live in. And yet here we're reminded that through the power of the Lord, the strength of the Lord, we might be able to serve the Lord without this fear. Friends, you don't need to be afraid of the world we live in. If you indeed are a follower of Jesus this morning, then, then you need to understand God, God has not promised you that you or I will make it through this life without suffering, without trial, without injury, without insult, or without perhaps even being killed for our faith. But what he has promised us is that this world is passing away. That this world is, is, is a moment. It is just a, a blink. It is barely a dot when we consider the great length of eternity. And God has secured us through the power of Jesus Christ for all eternity. We need not fear whatever may happen to us in this life because this life is a blink. And he tells us, he, he prophesies to us through Zechariah here that, that, that we might be able to serve him without being debilitated constantly by fear. And he does this because he is merciful to us. He's merciful to save us from our enemies and from our fear. We see a clear picture of that along with his grace. And then third, we see this. The Lord delivers us from darkness. He delivers us from darkness. And these final verses in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah prophesies concerning the role that his son John would play in the, as the forerunner to the Messiah. He says in verse 75 that John will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And this, this phrase, prepare his ways, it had a very specific context in Zechariah's day. In ancient Rome, you would have well-worn paths between towns and between destinations, and they, they were worn down, they were often uh, rutted out, they were muddy, they were hard to travel. And so if you were pulling some type of wagon or, or even something bigger like a carriage, you'd have a lot of trouble on this bumpy, worn-out path. And so in that day, in that time, it was customary when you had a royalty, when you had someone who was a ruler, someone very important, and they were going to be making kind of a, a grand entrance into a town, they would take a lot of time beforehand to prepare the way. And the way they would prepare the way is they would build up that path. They would take rocks and, and pavers and with great labor and toil, they would build up this path, this road that would be used by these Roman officials to make their grand entrance. It was called a highway. 
long before we came up with highways. That's what it was called, a highway. The Romans came up with this in order to prepare a smooth path for important people. And so here, when Zechariah says of his son that his son is going to prepare the way, he is literally saying, my son is going to prepare a path for the entrance of someone very important. But this wasn't just any ruler. This would be the ruler of all rulers. And this wasn't just any king. This would be the king of all kings. And he says that his son is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And how would he do that? Well, well, his highway would be constructed by calling people to repentance and faith. And by telling people to seek God for his grace and mercy. And by preaching to them this very clear message that they needed to to flee from their sin and turn from their sin, that they needed to have the the fruit of repentance in their life. And he would be bold enough to confront the, the religious leaders of his day who had the external appearance of repentance, but had no fruit of repentance in their life. John would be one to confront the person, like someone today who might bear the name Christian, who might be very consistent in their church attendance, and yet the the fruit of their life day to day is the fruit of unbelief, the fruit of wickedness and sin. And John would go in, in building up this path for Jesus. He would confront people on their sin. He would be very honest with them about their need to turn from their sin and the consequences if they did. And friend, that's a message that we're still called to preach today. We need not fear the opinion of man when it comes to preaching the reality of sin and the consequence if we refuse to turn from our sin and to trust in Jesus. We see here John had this call. He was preparing the way. And Zechariah prophesied this. He also said, Verse 78, that the sunrise shall visit us from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet to the way of peace. Friends, that that is a a, a picture of the gospel. There's no noise there. There's no static there. That, That is a picture of what Jesus does. He is the sunrise. He is the one who shines light into the darkness. It's a picture of what we read throughout the scripture of of the clear gospel message that that all of us are in sin. We we are in darkness. But the light of the gospel, it exposes our sin and helps us to understand the wages of our sin, that it's death, that we deserve the wrath of God for our sin. The, The light breaks through the darkness And helps us to see through the power of the Holy Spirit that God loves us so much that Jesus, his son, died on the cross for us. Jesus, who knew no sin, took on the consequence of our sin that we might receive his righteousness. That the light breaks through the darkness to help us understand. It's not enough just to hear these things or even know these things or be able to take a quiz and answer all the questions correctly. Now the gospel teaches us that every one of us needs to respond in repentance and in faith 
We need to confess Jesus as Lord. We need to bow our knee to Christ. We, we need to believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. We, we need to trust in Jesus. And if we'll trust in Jesus, the scripture says, everyone who does this, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Now that's the gospel message. That's the sunrise from on high. That's what gives light to us in our darkness. That's what guides our feet to the way of peace. That is the clear message of the gospel. The question for you and I this morning is, have we received that message? Because just like Zechariah was given a clear message, what kept him from receiving it was, was the interference, the noise in his own life of his unbelief, his lack of trust. And what keeps us from, from receiving, from hearing the clear gospel message so often is, is our unbelief. It's our sin. It's, it's our refusal to repent. But perhaps this morning, God has moved around the rabbit ears in such a way that the message is becoming clear to you. And the question is, will you respond to this message in repentance and in faith? And friends, I want to remind you as we close that, that God is in the business of doing these things in our life, of changing our hearts that, that we might believe and might trust Him. I'll leave you with this. I read an account not too long ago about battlefield triage. And this account was describing how uh, on the battlefield, oftentimes they would, they would set up uh, makeshift hospitals. They would do triage there on wounded soldiers. And they would categorize these soldiers in three ways. They would have a, a color-coded system that they would place on them when they arrived at the triage unit. Now, the first uh, category, the first color, meant that they were hopeless, meaning that there was nothing that could be done to save this wounded soldier. And so they would simply be kind of set aside. If they could, they'd give them something to keep them comfortable. But they, they were deemed hopeless. Now, the second category, the second color tag, meant that they were hopeful, meaning that, that their injury was mild enough that even if they didn't receive any type of medical attention, they were most likely going to survive. They were hopeful. So they would kind of be set aside at times, too, because the third category was the one that needed immediate care. Now, that was the category de deemed uh, doubtful. It meant that if they didn't receive care, it was doubtful they would survive, but if they, they did receive care, most likely their life could be saved. And so in this account, I read about a soldier named Lou. He arrived from a battlefield injury that had severely affected him. It had nearly taken his leg off. He was in very bad shape. And so as soon as he arrived at the triage unit, he was deemed hopeless. He was set aside to keep comfortable. But something interesting happened to Lou in this account. There was a, a nurse that noticed Lou and, and began to talk to him and, and realized that, that he was conscious, he was able to speak, and so as she talked to him more, she found out they were both from Ohio, she found out they were both from a similar, similar area, she found out they actually knew some of the same people. And so she had compassion on Lou. And so she decided in the middle of the night to sneak into the triage unit and to change the tag on Lou. And so she changed his tag from hopeful or from excuse me, uh, hopeless to doubtful. 
And the next morning, doctors saw this tag. They immediately put him on a different truck. They took him to a different unit. Uh, his leg was amputated, but he survived. And he went on to live a full life. As I read this account, I, I couldn't help but think about the gospel parallels. And how God is in the business of changing tags. <laughs> and so maybe this morning, maybe at some point in your life, you have felt rather hopeless and discarded. And maybe you have said what one gentleman recently said to me. Well, well, I'm far beyond God being able to save. Friends, I'll remind you this morning, no one is beyond God being able to save. God is in the business of changing tags. The question this morning is, will you receive this work of God? Will you respond to his grace and his mercy that he has shown you through a second chance, a third chance, maybe a hundredth chance today? Will you respond in repentance and faith? Will you trust him? And I pray that you will. So let me pray that for us now. If you would stand together as we prepare to respond to God's word,